Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Meet the star who will never grow old. The idle of Edwardian days who at the age of 60 will charm the youth of 1934 by looking like Sweet Sixteen. Meet the miracle of the age, Miss Harriet Green. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk about Soho and the films that are set there. My name is Dominic Delaghi and this is the second of a three-part special based on the life of one of the biggest stage stars of the 1920s, the most popular film star of the 1930s and the UK's first worldwide female superstar. And they're all the same person, Soho's very own Jessie Matthews. If you didn't hear the last episode, I would encourage you to hit pause now and listen to that bit first, or you might find this all a bit confusing. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking to Dr Melanie Williams of the University of East Anglia about Jessie's biggest and most enduring film, Evergreen, from 1934. But before that... I'm afraid I'm going to have to use that phrase that people always use on podcasts. I'm going to dive right in. Yes, that's right. Dive right in to where we left off in the last episode. And as I said in the last episode, to condense a life of 74 years into just three 10-minute segments of a podcast means it really is a gallop and I've had to miss out much, much more than I've kept in. So if you'd like some more detailed accounts of Jesse's life, I've posted links to various resources in the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com When we left off, Jessie had returned from her first American tour. Her first love, George Ferrara, had hightailed it back to South America, never to be seen again. And her first marriage to Henry Lytton Jr. had collapsed. Professionally, though, things were actually going very well for Jessie. She'd left the André Charlot stable of performers and won herself a very generous contract with the other big West End impresario of the day, C.B. Cochrane. The contract had been issued by Cochrane whilst Jessie was still married to Lytton, and because she was still technically a minor, her husband had had to sign it. It's a mark of how much Cochrane admired Jessie that the first three shows she did for him were written by three of the biggest writing powerhouses in the business. Rogers and Hart, Noel Coward and Cole Porter. Not bad for somebody barely touching 20. 
The first of these three shows was the Rogers and Hart Review, One Damn Thing After Another, and it contained a song that would become one of Jesse's signature numbers, My Heart Stood Still. During the run of One Damn Thing After Another, she was still stuck in the death throes of her marriage to Lytton, who continued to leech off her whilst gadding about with various other women. Meanwhile, at work, Jessie was getting to know one of her fellow performers, Sonny Hale, a short, bespectacled young man who, despite not having matinee idol looks, and even though he was not yet a lead player, was actually quite famous. This was because he was married to one of the biggest stars of the London stage, the beautiful Evelyn Lay. Their wedding had been all over the popular press and had even made the newsreels. Sonny was also contracted to appear in all three of these Cochrane shows with Jesse and was also, like Lytton, from a theatrical family. Both his dad, Robert, and his sister, Binny, were well-known actors and yet despite this, or perhaps because of it, Sonny lacked confidence and Jesse made it her business to build him up. Once one damn thing had opened, Rehearsals began for Cochrane's next review, This Year of Grace. This was written by 28-year-old wunderkind Noel Coward, whose otherwise stratospheric career had just taken its first little stumble. Here's author Rob Baker. In 1928, C.B. Cochrane got Noel Coward to write the music for a review, and he was confident that Noel Coward would do it for him because uh, Coward had just had a couple of really bad, for the first time in his career, really bad experiences at the theatre, really bad reviews. So he got the music to write for this review called This Year of Grace. And uh, Jesse Matthews was, of course, unbelievably nervous of Noel Coward, who seemed so sophisticated and well-spoken to her. And uh, Jesse Matthews was introducing the song called A Room with a View. And as she started singing, Noel Coward stopped her and said, how do you spell mountain, M-O-U-T-A-I-N? How do you pronounce it, mountain? Why are you singing Mountain? And this was her elocution. So she was so nervous of Noel Coward, she exaggerated her elocution lessons, and so she, she kept on saying Mountain. And uh, if you listen to Jessie Matthews singing A Room With A View now, you can see she almost swallows the, the tun bit of Mountain because she's still nervous of saying Mountain. This Year of Grace was a return to form for Noel Coward and was another huge success for him and therefore for Jessie and Sonny too. With her marriage to Lytton now receding even further into the past, Jessie's friendship with Sonny became closer. Every night they sang a duet together, Room with a View. Simply staged with Jessie and Sonny seated together in a bay window holding hands, looking into each other's eyes, it's a romantic song of yearning for one another. And, as Jessie explained in her autobiography, it was to have a cataclysmic effect on both of their lives. We sang it together, and on this special night, every word we sang had a meaning for us. At the end of our song, Sunny whispered, let's make it come true. I caught my breath. We looked into each other's eyes and we were lost. Who was to blame? Is there ever any blame in these things? Could we blame Noel Coward for writing his sweet song that we had made our own? For I defy any young couple to sing that song together every night without a strong bond growing between them. No recording was ever made of Jesse and Sonny singing A Room With A View together, but Jesse did sing it solo on many occasions over the years, including on this recording, 
which was made towards the end of her life. A room with a view and you And no one to worry us No one to hurry us through This dream we found We'll gaze at the sky And try To guess what it's all about Then we will figure out why The world is round As I mentioned in the last episode, the two main sources of information about Jessie's life are her own autobiography and Michael Thornton's unauthorised version, both from around 1974. They sometimes diverge on the facts, so the sequence of events are a bit hazy. But I think we can safely say that Jessie and Sonny's friendship became quite intense during this series of three Cochrane shows, and that Sonny's marriage to Evelyn was suffering as a consequence. From Jessie's account, after Sonny's whispered comment to her on stage, they were frank with each other about their feelings, but made the firm decision to stay apart for the sake of Sonny's marriage. It's also clear, though, that even though they'd made this decision and were technically sticking to it, people had begun to talk, and that this gossip had reached the ears of Evelyn. Michael Thornton talks about the pair of them dancing together at the Gargoyle Club on Dean Street in 1928, and that their closeness was obvious to anybody who saw them. In Jessie's autobiography, she talks about an awkward phone call she received shortly after that night in the gargoyle. The telephone rang at home. Hello, I said, and immediately felt icy tremors down my spine. It was Evelyn, Sonny's wife. Is Sonny there? She asked abruptly. Then, without waiting for an answer, she said, Please ask him to come home. The shock of hearing Evelyn's voice... The realisation of what was behind her telephone call made me tremble. Although we had always been friendly, and Evelyn's nature was sweet and kind, I hadn't spoken to her for a long time. Sonny isn't here, I told her as calmly as I could. Sonny doesn't tell me what he's doing, for we don't speak to each other. There was a silence for a moment. Evelyn, I said, my dressing room is next to his. And I heard him tell Fred Groves about golf. Why don't you ring him at his club? An hour later, Evelyn telephoned again. She was sorry she had bothered me. She had found Sonny at his club. It was during the previews in Manchester of Jesse and Sonny's third Cochrane show together, Cole Porter's Wake Up and Dream, after months of dancing around the issue, that Jesse and Sonny finally became physically acquainted. Shortly afterwards, Evelyn decided to pay a surprise visit to Manchester and walked into the backstage area of the Palace Theatre to find Jessie and Sonny holding hands. Their sudden leap apart and their guilty expressions made it all too obvious what was going on, although all three of them brushed it off in the moment. Evelyn was obviously hurt and humiliated and, after Sonny eventually came clean, she began the divorce process with Jessie, named as the co-respondent. Both women found themselves splashed all over the front pages of the tabloids leading up to the hearing in July 1930, and there was no mistaking whose side the great British press had taken. Evelyn was the country's sweetheart, and Jessie was the scarlet woman. Sonny, who by Jessie's account was making all the running in their affair, managed to escape most of the tabloid opprobrium. Hmm... 
Sensibly, Evelyn took a job on Broadway and then another in Hollywood, so was not present for any of the proceedings. Not sensibly at all, Jesse opted to attend court and sat beside Sonny throughout the harrowing experience. Here's author Rob Baker again. Evelyn, ironically, ended up uh, working with Noel Coward uh, on Bittersweet. Um, she turned it down initially and be- then became a huge star in America. And she petitioned for divorce with Sonny Hale and it became a celebrated uh, divorce court case. So while Evelyn Lay was in uh, Hollywood, against all advice, Jesse Matthews actually went to the court case and um, some of her letters were read out in open court. My darling, I want you and need you badly, all of you, and for a very long time I'm lying here waiting for you to possess me. The dear little boobs which you love so much are waiting for you also. So during one even more embarrassing letter, she fainted and had to be helped outside, but the judge had no sympathy whatsoever and he, he, it was really difficult for him to hide it. He was called Samoras Hill, who once described his legal work as having one foot in the sea and one foot in the sewer. And uh, his mood apparently was incredibly bad because England were losing very badly to Australia. But whatever the reason, the judge's comments were written down with glee by the uh, tabloid reporters and he said uh, with brutal severity, It's quite clear that the husband admits himself to be a cad and nobody will quarrel with that. And the woman Matthews writes letters which show her to be a person of an odious mind. She gets taken to the cleaners like she gets completely, you know, the coverage is vile about her. And this is Dr Lawrence Knapper who was our film chat guest on the last episode and basically just cropped up everywhere. And that's about snobbery, I think. That's really clearly, you know, she's a fair target because she's a bit vulgar and therefore... It's a bit like the way that the media talk about, I don't know, stars from The Only Way is Essex. It's that, like, they're a bit working class and therefore when they hit the skids, you can just really, like, the media don't care sort of thing. And I think there's a, definitely a sense in which there's that going on with her and it happens continually to her, of course. Also, it's like, it's not just coming from the media. She is also fiery, not afraid of, you know, kicking off. That's also in the mix. But the divorce was granted, and shortly afterwards, Jesse and Sonny were married. Evelyn, too, went on to remarry very happily, and that marriage to the actor Frank Lawton lasted until his death in 1969. For the rest of their lives, Jesse and Evelyn were bound to run into each other on occasions. It's said that the manager of the Savoy had warned his staff that if the two women happened to turn up there on the same evening, they should be seated as far away from each other as possible but their first actual meeting did not occur until about three years after the decree Nysai had been granted, and it was while Jesse was filming The Good Companions. Evelyn was working on a different film at the same studios, and somebody, perhaps mischievously, had given them adjacent dressing rooms. When they finally bumped into each other, a suspicious number of people from the studio, extras, crew and admin staff, just happened to be passing by to witness their first meeting. Nervously, the women approached each other, and it was Evelyn who broke the silence with the words, Hello, Jessie. How lovely to see you. Before indulging in small talk for a minute or two, and then going their separate ways. Neither of these women was going to provide a free show to the rubberneckers. Back in 1930, though, with that nasty business of the divorce behind them, C.B. Cochran, who knew and liked all the parties in the dispute, cast Jesse in what was billed to be the biggest show the West End had ever seen, Evergreen, at the Adelphi Theatre. With a book and lyrics by Rogers and Hart, this was not a review, but a fully-fledged musical 
about a young woman who fools the world by pretending to be her own mother, who had been a much-loved music hall star. The show was revolutionary in its scale and vision. It had multiple massive sets, a revolving stage, hundreds of lavish costumes, and an enormous staff of performers and crew. During the previews in Glasgow, it became clear that this incredibly technically complicated show was not going to be ready for the first public performance, so Charles B. Cochran took to the stage and addressed the audience. This was a historic moment, he explained, and that what they were about to see, a musical entertainment on this scale, had never been attempted before, so there was inevitably going to be stops and starts. The audience loved this. They loved it even more when, after the show finally came down in the early hours of the next morning, they discovered that Cochrane had been on the phone to Glasgow Corporation and had paid for the trams to run all night so that the audience could get home safely. Now that's what's called good PR. Evergreen eventually ran for over 200 performances at the Adelphi, where, incidentally, you can still to this day enjoy a drink in the Jesse Matthews bar, and it made Jesse the biggest star of her day. Inevitably, films beckoned. Jesse had played small parts in silent films before, but in the 1931 talkie Out of the Blue, she played her first lead role, and it was an experience she hated. Whatever it was that Jesse had that illuminated the stage, it wasn't going to work on celluloid, at least not in the opinion of the powers that were on this film. Her face was all wrong. It was too skinny, with eyes and teeth that were too big. Her nose was bulbous, her upper lip was too long, her chin was too small, and those eyebrows simply would not do. She was subjected to a series of confidence-shattering measures, including the application of heavy, ghoulish makeup. Wax was applied to her teeth to fill in gaps, and her eyebrows, they were shaved off. In Jessie's own words, she looked like Frankenstein's little sister. Out of the Blue was a critical and box office flop, as well as being a horrible experience for its star. Her next two films, also made for Gaumont British, were There Goes the Bride and The Midship Maid, both from 1932. These were better films, showcasing her talents in a way that eventually led to greater things, but both were directed by Albert de Corville, a dictatorial and sometimes quite cruel man who made Jessie's life a misery. He would try to control all aspects of her life, not just what she did on set, and would threaten her, claiming that he had made her and he could break her. Oddly, he was known to carry around with him at all times a certificate which asserted that he, Albert de Corville, was officially, definitely not insane. After these three terrible experiences, Jessie was ready to quit films altogether and concentrate on stage work. That was until she was approached by the director Victor Saville to play the part of Susie Dean in his next film, The Good Companions. See the previous episode of Soho Bites for details. This was to be a big budget flagship film for Gaumont British and to be approached like this was gratifying and terrifying in equal measure. Saville handled Jessie with care and consideration, telling her that, as far as he was concerned, the part was already hers, but he wanted her to do a screen test anyway, to show her how beautiful she was when photographed correctly. 
Another reason for the screen test was that not everybody was convinced by the choice of Jesse Matthews and Savile was facing quite strong opposition from the producer Michael Balkan who thought casting her in such a high-profile, high-stakes film was too much of a risk but Savile remained adamant and Jesse got the part. There Goes the Bride and the Midshipmaid were released during the production period of The Good Companions to good reviews and healthy box office which could only help the pre-release publicity of The Good Companions. Hollywood began to notice and several powerful producers contacted Michael Balkan hoping to borrow, at a decent price, this burgeoning new star for films at some of the major Hollywood studios. One report suggested a wage of $3,000 a week had been offered, around $70,000 in today's money, but Balkan refused all of these approaches. He had decided that Jesse would be Britain's first worldwide star and that he would be the man to manage this ascent to glory. For a bit more on this, I spoke to PhD candidate Jade Evans, who has spent hours of her life trawling the archives of the BFI. Balkan really wanted to create a sustainable British film industry, and to make that happen, he wanted to build a national cinema that Britain could be proud of, that the British public actually wanted to go and see the film when you had like an influx of American films and because of the Cinematograph Act you had a lot of quota quickers being created in Britain and Balkan really wanted to try and create films that the British public wanted to see but also that would be able to travel across the pond and be successful in America at a time when Hollywood had a star system that really helped to sell the films creating a star system in Britain was one of the ways that he would be able to achieve this. Stars who were recognisable and popular in the US, but all the while remaining British stars. And Balkan was, you know, he, he was a businessman and he was very good at negotiating terms. And so he, you know, there's a lot of correspondence in the archive that talks about this kind of trying to create connections and a relationship with Hollywood. But when it comes to the stars, Balkan had a set idea of what he wanted in mind for the kind of success that he wanted British films to have. Jessie was very successful in Britain and she was Balkan's biggest property and I think this was a huge factor in you know, why she didn't quite conquer America. Jessie was under contract to Gorman and so when it came to having the opportunity to go to Hollywood, her contractual arrangements were really a factor in holding her back from making it in the US. And Jessie was very much focused on her home and family life as well. And Jessie was adamant that her husband, Sonny Hill, should also be offered a contract in the US. But he wasn't as popular as Jessie, and so her demands did hinder the office somewhat. It's conceivable that the divorce had added a certain glamorous frisson to Jessie's public image and may actually have helped her career despite the public roasting she received at the time. It did have its downsides, though, even years later. When The Good Companions was chosen as the film for a royal screening with the King and Queen in attendance, it was decided that Jessie would not be permitted to meet the royal party after the screening because of her association with scandal. Not only was The Good Companions Jessie's first major hit film, it was also the first of five films she would eventually make with Victor Savile, the others being Friday the 13th, Evergreen, First a Girl and It's Love Again. Taken as a whole, this collection of five films is considered to be her best work on screen and she never quite hit those heights again. All of them were released in a three-year period between 1933 and 1936. 
Within a couple of years, Savile had moved to Hollywood and they would never work together again. After The Good Companions came the next Savile film, Friday the 13th, in which Jesse appeared on screen briefly for the first time with Sonny, and this was followed by Waltzes from Vienna, slightly odd choice which was directed by a young Alfred Hitchcock, not a man known for his sensitive handling of fragile young stars. She did not enjoy making that film one little bit. And then came the biggest film of her career, which is to be based on the biggest stage show of her career, Evergreen. If Jessie Matthews had led a more conventional life, perhaps if she had stayed in Soho and become maybe a seamstress or worked in the market or stayed at home and churned out kids, perhaps her mental health would have stayed on an even keel. Perhaps she'd have been a happier person. Certainly in later life, she stated, as in this clip from 1966, that if given the chance to do it all again, she would have chosen a different life. Would you uh, go through it all again, the show business career? No. Not for all the tea in China. Not for all the tea in China. You would not go on the stage? No, 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 definitely not. But what with the strain of working incredibly long hours in the studio by day and on stage by night, after the public scandal, after the systematic demolition of her already fragile confidence by people she worked with, Jessie's mental health was precarious by the time filming on Evergreen began and the production was held up for a fortnight after she had, as she puts it in her autobiography, a little nervous breakdown. Just a little one, she says, hardly worth mentioning. Melanie Williams is a film historian and professor of film at the University of East Anglia. We'll be talking to her later about Evergreen, but here she is on that little breakdown of Jessie's. That particular film seems to have been very painful. She kind of talks about it as the point where things begin to unravel or the, the pressure gets too much for her. And she ends up being checked into a rest home to try and recover. And then she goes back to work on the film and has this awful moment of uh, going to perform her, her number as Harriet Green, the Daddy Wouldn't Buy Me a Bow Wow musical number. And she talks about feeling like the, the planks of the floor have become like soft and her dress feels like lead and she feels like she's sinking into the ground and has a, a, another momentary collapse but is able to, to rally and bring herself back into the moment and perform and complete the film. And she credits Victor Savile very much with providing the sympathy and support and kindness that she had always had from other people that she'd worked with or worked for. Although Evergreen was the huge hit it was planned and expected to be, Jessie was burnt out. And now that she had a few quid behind her, she decided to take some time off. Although Gaumont British were reluctant to allow their star to be away from the screen for too long, their hand was forced by the discovery that Jessie was expecting a baby, due at the start of the next year, 1935. Both Jessie and Sonny were delighted by this much-hoped-for pregnancy, and after Gaumont agreed to give her a whole year off work, preparations began at their hideaway home near Richmond for the new arrival. One day, in December 1934, a heavily pregnant Jessie was in their garden attempting to rescue a bird from the jaws of her cat. She somehow managed to fall over and went into premature labour. A baby boy, Robert, was born on December the 18th, 1934, and lived for just four hours. After the news broke in the papers, the public was overwhelmingly sympathetic, which had not always been Jessie's experience of public opinion, and she was deluged by warm wishes and mountains of flowers. 
This was of little comfort to her, though, as she lay catatonic with grief in her hospital bed. Unable to contemplate this new future, the couple began to talk about having another baby. Perhaps if they were lucky, they could actually become parents again before Jessie's extended break from work came to an end. But complications caused by the nature of the birth led to doctors telling them to avoid another pregnancy for at least two years. Perhaps unadvisedly, in a move that would surely not be allowed these days, Jessie and Sonny rushed into adopting a child. And on January 18th, 1935, exactly one month to the day since the birth and death of their son, three-week-old Catherine entered their lives. And that's where we leave Jessie, Sonny and their new arrival, Catherine, for now. At this point, Jessie is only 28 years old and she lived to the age of 74, so there's a lot of life to squeeze into the next episode, including her fall from public favour, again, her third marriage and her time as a BBC radio star. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, which you can do on all the usual platforms, and you'll find a list of some of those at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. The 1934 film Evergreen was, as you know by now, based on the stage show Evergreen. In case my presenting skills aren't up to it, and I haven't made the distinction clear, the film title is all one word, Evergreen, and the stage show title is two, Evergreen. I'm not sure why that change was made, but as we shall hear, it wasn't the only difference between the two productions. In the film, Jessie plays two characters, Harriet Green, a much-loved star of the Edwardian Music Hall, and her daughter, also called Harriet. We begin the film in a music hall in the first decade of the 20th century where a capacity audience has gathered to see Harriet Senior's last ever performance. Ladies and gentlemen, it is very gratifying to Miss Green, it is very gratifying to the management to listen to such heartfelt appreciation as you have just expressed. This is the last appearance of Miss Green, of our Harriet, on this or any other stage. Even though she's still young and at the height of her powers, Harriet is retiring from the stage because she's engaged to be married to a very nice man who happens to be called the Marquis of Staines. He's played by Ivor McLaren. Despite him being a very nice man, though, this is the noughties, the 1990s, and it simply isn't done for a married woman to appear on stage night after night, especially not a marchioness. During the course of the evening, we discover that Harriet has a dark secret. She has a baby, born out of wedlock, 
and the absent father is a scoundrel. He, upon learning that Harriet is about to become a marchioness, has re-emerged and is planning to blackmail her for the rest of her life. Rather than tolerate this, Harriet makes a split-second decision, and as she leaves the ne'er-do-well father in his upstairs room in Hackney, she tells Hawkey, that's Mrs Hawkes, her faithful dresser, what she has decided. Hawkey, I've made up my mind. Go up and tell him that I've left the stage. Tell him that I am not going to get married, that I'm going to clear out and go back home to South Africa. And me, Navi, aren't I coming with you? No, Hawkey. You're going into the country to bring up Harriet Jr. Couldn't you bring yourself to take her with you? No, Hawkey. Her father stands for too much that has been miserable in my life. My life is going to be my own from now on. You'll bring her up beautifully, Hawkey. I'm sure of that. Harriet! Harriet, my love! You must listen to reason! And so we, her daughter and her fiancé, never see her again. The rest of the film is set in the present day, well, in 1934 anyway, and Harriet's baby has grown up to be, would you believe it, the absolute spitting image of her. Sadly, Harriet Jr. has no memory of her mother and now uses the surname of the kindly dresser who brought her up, Hawks. Through a convoluted set of circumstances, she ends up taking part in an extended publicity stunt in which she, along with Tommy Thompson, played by Barry Mackay, Leslie Benn, played by Sonny, and Maudie, played by Betty Balfour, conspire together to have Harriet appear on stage pretending to be her own mother. Well, my idea is that from now on, this girl becomes her own mother. Impersonates her mother. Yes, yes that's the idea. You're all mad. No, just clever. But her mother died years ago. In South Africa. And as nobody was interested, nobody realised it. Do you realise that her mother was a very great artist? I know I could do it, Mr. Ben. If only you'd give me the chance. And don't forget, I was her mother's understudy. And I was her dresser for years. And I remember all her little ways from A to Z. We could teach her. Do you seriously mean that you think you can persuade the British public that this girl is the Harriet Green of Edwardian times? Yes. We persuaded you she was two minutes ago. Do you realise that if this child's mother were alive today, she'd be about 50 years of age? Good heavens, man, of course I do. Oh, but damn it, this kid looks 16. Damn it, man, of course she does. Meet the star who will never grow old. The idle Edwardian days who, at the age of 60, will charm the youth of 1934 by looking like Sweet Sixteen. Meet the miracle of the age, Miss Harriet Green. Over my shoulder The scheme, or fraud, always feels doomed to crash about their ears, especially as Harriet and Tommy fall in love with each other, which might have been okay, were it not for the fact that, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, Tommy is Harriet's son. Emmeline Williams is brought in to adapt the source material, and some new songs are added by Harry M. Woods, including one of Jesse's lifelong signature tunes, Over My Shoulder. Both Jesse and Sonny were in Evergreen the stage show, but whereas Jesse played the same part both on stage and on screen, it was felt that poor old Sonny didn't have the right qualities to play Harriet's handsome love interest in the film, so was instead given the part of impresario Leslie Benn, and he plays it very well. The film has various set-piece big musical numbers, including the spectacular finale staged as at the Adelphi on a massive revolve. There's also a gigantic number called Springtime in Your Heart, which seems to have used every available dancer, singer and extra within 10 miles of Shepherd's Bush and takes place in four different periods in history. And this, of course, meant multiple costume changes for the huge chorus. 
And Evergreen features one of Jesse's most famous moments on film, the song Dancing on the Ceiling, which she choreographed in partnership with her frequent collaborator, Buddy Bradley. In this number, she dances solo around Alfred Young's eye-poppingly beautiful Art Deco set, wearing the most floaty of diaphanous floaty dresses, while yearning for Tommy, who is in an upstairs room. Dancing on the Ceiling was banned by the BBC because the word bed is mentioned twice. If Michael Balkan's large investment in the film was intended to make it appeal to an American audience, it certainly paid off, as Evergreen was a big, profitable hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Variety magazine described it as the first musical from across the sea that comes close to competing successfully with the best efforts of Hollywood. To talk about Evergreen, I was delighted to be able to once again grab some time with Dr Melanie Williams. She's been on the show twice before, and the first time was live on stage, rock and roll, back in episode five. But this time, I'm afraid, we had to meet online, so I offer my customary apology for the imperfect sound quality. I began by asking Melanie how much Evergreen differed from Evergreen. Well, I mean, for a start, there are new songs written for it when it becomes a film including Over My Shoulder, which is, you know, becomes Jesse Matthews' kind of signature So that wasn't in the song. original stage show? That's not in the original oh, song. interesting. So the original music is Rogers and Hart, so really fantastic American composers who write Dancing on the Ceiling, which is, you know, a big kind of standard within the American songbook. But, it, it, yeah, it's got these kind of additional songs put in as well. When Jessie Matthews talks about it, she discusses it as a as a kind of improvement. And obviously she's in the original C.B. Cochran stage production. So she's kind of returning to role that she performed before. And that was kind of challenging in many ways because before she'd very much been a musical comedy performer on stage, um, as well as being a, a very skilled dancer. Whereas... This was really the first thing in which she had to act a role as well. And that, I think, is magnified when she comes to make the film, that it has to be not only demonstrating that skill in singing and dancing, but also being able to give a performance as an actor. So she talks about working with John Gielgud on The Good Companions, which was like the previous year and how that really helped her kind of learn a lot and up her game in making sure that she could kind of hold her own with really good actors on screen so I think she brings some of that into into Evergreen as well because in some ways it's quite a kind of poignant story of this woman having to flee her past life and this other young woman who has never known her mother who's disappeared, placed in this sort of very difficult situation of having to impersonate her own mother whilst pretending that her boyfriend is her son. I mean, this is pretty kind of intense by scene, quasi-incestuous stuff going on. And it's kind of dealt with with a light touch in the film. But, you know, you've got to, that's a lot to navigate your way through, I think, as a performer, as well as the brilliant musical numbers that that she performs do you like her performance in it her acting performance as opposed to her singing and dancing do you think she pulls it off yeah bless her i mean it's it's an impossible 
role. I think she's she's good at the pretending to be her own mother while clearly not being that age. This sort of ridiculous charade that that she has to collude with of, of pretending that she's a much older woman when she's clearly not. She hasn't aged since the end of the 19th century. Yeah. <laughs> it's a preposterous thing to try and do. So in a way, if the performance is a bit wobbly, that kind of works in the service of the story. When we last spoke, you you suggested that a film by Billy Wilder in 1980 or 79, 80? Late, late like 70s, yeah. yeah. Fedora has a similar theme where a star of bygone days is impersonated by her daughter. And I watched it the other day. I really liked it. It's quite dark. Yeah. Much darker than Evergreen. Do you happen to know if that was... I mean, is it consciously based on Evergreen or is it just a, just the theme that's kind of come along? I don't think anyone's kind of admitted that it's a direct reference point. It, either Wilder or Tom Tryon, who, who wrote the story that, that Fedora, the film, is based on. But the film was a big hit. The show was a hit, the stage show initially. The, the film was a hit. In the 30s, it's around the time that certainly Wilder would be very kind of cinematically aware and plugged in and so I think there's every possibility that this this kind of story is, is filtered through into the story of Fedora as well as kind of a, a side order of Sunset Boulevard as well that idea well, yeah, of the aging the, star yeah, coming yeah. back to the screen and but the thing of having the daughter impersonate the mother as though she's never aged because everybody wants it so much everybody kind of colludes in this because they want to believe that this fantastic star of a bygone time has never aged and is ever youthful even though it takes a much more kind of tragic turn in fedora it's slightly more realistic i mean there would be psychological scarring and damage (laughs) but instead it's a kind of joyous film particularly in this final strip tease sequence where she's sick of having to impersonate her own mother and sort of takes off all her clothes and starts dancing joyously in a, in a to modern way it, the, the masquerade um and then there's a court case where the rights and wrongs of impersonating her own mother are, are debated and there's a lovely and poignant moment where she's singing along to the recording of her mother's performance and she sings along with it and that becomes a kind of justification for the rightness of what she's done that she wasn't trying to do anything dishonest this was more a kind of moment of connection between a mother and daughter who'd never known each other and it's quite a quite a sort of poignant little moment really and the the judge takes his glasses off and smiles in a kind of like avuncular way it that reminds me of there's a scene in airplane where the air hostess is playing guitar to the sick child. <laughs> yeah. And all the, audio, all the people on the plane all kind of start smiling at the camera and everything like, in a really wholesome way. It's it's a wonderful, poignant little moment that kind of reminds you of the, the emotional core of this story. There is a, a woman who had to leave her own daughter behind and never gets to be a mother to her. And this girl who's grown up who then ends up impersonating that death mother i mean this is the stuff of like fastbinder melodrama potentially but it's all kind of resolved through this you know through music through singing together and that kind of makes everything all right so the 30s was quite a difficult time funding wise for the british 
film industry. What sort of statement is Balkan making, Michael Balkan, the producer, making about what his intentions are with the scale of this film? Because it's it's a huge... It's taken what was the biggest stage show and made it into now the biggest, well, British film. Is he, is it a statement of intent of some kind? Yeah, I, I, I very much think so. In Andrew Higson's book, Waving the Flag, he compares and contrasts the different tactics of two different film companies around this time in the early 30s. So he kind of compares and contrasts Jesse Matthews and Gracie Fields and the two companies they work for, Go World British and ATP, Associated Talking Pictures, and talks about them as representing two different ways of differentiating British product. And ATP is much more about the kind of local, the recognisable speaking to a domestic audience through kind of local appeal and, and Gracie Fields' status as this kind of Lancashire sweetheart epitomises that. Go More British, on the other hand, at this point are thinking in international terms that in order to compete on the international stage, you've got to draw on the best international talent and you've got to kind of go big or go home. You've got to spend money in order to make money on an international scale. And you've got to have stars that have international appeal. So whereas you might play up the kind of localness, the regionality of someone like Gracie Fields, with Jessie Matthews, you're focusing less on her background, which is, you know, working class, London, and more about her being this very slick performer who can hold her own on with an international audience that she epitomizes something very streamlined and um, individualistic is, is how Higson talks about it. That's how she's kind of made to appear. She is a bit like one of these kind of glorious art deco statuettes. You know, she's a, as streamlined as, as the kind of design lines of the period. And it's all about glamour. I mean, she was quite well known for, well, A, having this very live dancer's body. And Victor Savile, you know, in this supposed apocryphal remark to, to Michael Bolton, who's less enamoured with Jessie Matthews, who is not sure whether she's the, the right star for the, the roles that, that Victor Savile as director wants to put her in. He, he says, Mick, we've got to sell that body. So the idea of it being this very kind of powerful, glamorous image that, that she projects through the dancing, but also through things like costuming. And again, I've sort of read reports from the time where some studio person refers to her as uh, Chassis Matthews. So the idea of the body, the chassis being an absolutely essential part of her kind of star image and appeal. And having costumes that are diaphanous, revealing in different ways, is a, a way of marketing that. Even when she's pretending to be um, her own mother, there's this kind of odd hybrid of contemporary 30s fashion and something that looks more Belle Epoque. It's very, it's, it's some very weird clothes in Evergreen as well. Some of the dancers' leotards are completely yeah, those bizarre. weird top hats. They look like a sort of leprechaun outfit. Can I just say as well about 
selling the body and the face in comparison with that. Jesse Matthews had a really hard time, I think, in films particularly because they would kind of insist that her face wasn't right and they'd do weird, I suppose, proto-contouring things to try and make her her eyes and her nose and her cheeks look a certain shape and they would vacillate between saying your cheeks are too chubby, your cheeks are too gaunt, putting wax between her teeth to close the gaps. And I think it has a real impact on the way that she sees herself. And there's this really interesting moment she talks about in her autobiography where Vic Savile kind of makes her look in the mirror and says, you know, push your hair back. You've got a wonderful face. You're beautiful. You know, and she says this awful thing about, you know, but I'm, I look frightened when I'm on camera because um, it shows me what an ugly little bitch I am. There's this real kind of throwback to all this sense of unworthiness and ugliness that's got a lot to do with her class identity and being called a gutter snipe and common and all of that stuff. And and Savile's able to sort of convince her that no, that's not the case at all. You know, you look at the camera, believe that you are beautiful and you will be. And she says it's this important change attitude rather than being pursued by a camera feeling like I'm a call for to feeling like a much more confident screen performer and you know she's got such a wonderful interwar face the big eyes the cupid's bow lip she's you know perfect for that period as well yeah it was out of the blue wasn't it where she had to do all that stuff with her teeth and the weird lines on her face and all that kind of stuff yeah Um, yeah Fred Astaire was considered for a role in Evergreen because he was, I think he was over in the country doing some theatre yeah, work. Yeah, he's, he's performing on the, on the London stage at the time. So and which, I suppose you would have been the Barry Mackay part. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, which would have probably meant quite a lot of revising of things. But, I mean, it, it in some ways, the plot of Evergreen absolutely fits within the the sort of template for the Astaire Rogers musicals. They're always about mistaken identity and people pretending to be something that they're not, various kinds of masquerade. So this is a kind of another version of that. And he definitely thought Jesse Matthews was really good dancer, was very keen to be partnered with her, but RKO wouldn't release him. And why would, uh, you probably don't know the, the specific reason, but I mean, what kind of reasons would they have for not releasing him? Would they, not, would they have not made money out of... Because it's not a free loan, is it? It's, um, they'd make money out of it. It's very hard to know, but I guess it just wasn't in their interest to do that. They want to exploit their valuable property themselves. Yeah, because she definitely wanted to do the job with him, didn't she? She was uh, yeah. quite keen to work with him. And around this point as well, MGM are sniffing around her to see if they can kind of sign her up for a contract. And obviously MGM specialists in, in musicals and... That would have been a very interesting development in her career, but go more British don't are, are unwilling to release it because I think they get a sense that they have a, a star of international potential, so they want to kind of hang on to that themselves. So, so there are these kind of moments of possibility within her career in terms of Hollywood, in terms of different kinds of co-stars, different vehicles that she might have appeared in, but the fates sort of conspire against it in various ways. Michael Balkan was very keen on finding ways of developing a kind of domestic film industry and 
it's a kind of mark of some of the success that that some of those films have is that they they get the eye and the ear of the big Hollywood studios. But there's a kind of resistance or an annoyance to anybody who answers that call. And Balkan is kind of quite vocal in calling out people for like being unpatriotic and abandoning their country, particularly so with Hitchcock on the eve of war. So there's this idea of, you know, your country needs you and you're going off to Hollywood to make a film. And, you know, some of that is directed towards other stars and writers and so on. But there is that sense of, you know, do you take your Britishness to Hollywood where it appears in things that might be cliched um, travesties of Britishness? Or do you stay and stick it out in an industry that is perpetually in crisis, that struggles to be able to compete? But that's largely because its talent keeps being hoovered away by a much more powerful global player. So these are continuing tensions within the, the kind of relationship between British cinema and Hollywood cinema. What strikes me to watch it sometimes is that it's quite risque. Mm-hmm. Um, there's quite, I mean, not just, there's lots of kind of bums and legs and chiffon and everything, but also quite a lot of, I mean, the fact, the very fact that there's an illegitimate child and, uh, you know, premarital sex and all that kind of stuff, that feels quite risque to me. And there's quite a lot of hints about, like there's one point, a dancing girl earlier on, she arrives late on stage and Sonny says, didn't you get any sleep? And she sort of says, what do you think? And I wonder if, I mean, would it have, because this is the similar period to the code in, in Hollywood, the Hayes Code in Hollywood, and would it have passed the Hayes Code test? Well, I suppose it's of a piece with uh, the sort of gold diggers of 1933, the, the Warner Brothers musicals, which are full of like wisecracking chorus girls of sort of dubious morals and lots of guys who were on, on the mate trying to have re- illicit relationships with, with these girls. So it feels like it's sort of, importing some of that theatrical flavour into into British film. And yeah, I mean I suppose it's a it's a game of how much you can get away with. British censorship is a bit different to American censorship, which it is already also in a kind of state of evolution around this time, the early thirties. So you've got production code, but it's not going to be as strictly enforced until a little a little bit later on. So in that early sound period, you get this really interesting moment of people like Mae West making films before they're, they're kind of bowdlerized and made safe and sanitized. So quite daring situations, characters, particularly around sexuality, but also around crime uh, before that has to be dampened down in various ways to kind of comply with a stricter new form of censorship so yeah the early 30s i think are, are, are very interesting in that respect and that idea of what you can get away with whilst also set, staying within the constraints of reasonable censorship i mean is it of a kind with the rest of the stuff that's out there at the time is it would it have stood out as i suppose it's quite spicy for a for a british film there's a particular shot where the set spins round and there's basically all these chorus girls with their heads through some sort of... Just their bums, basically. Yeah. And I was watching it with my seven-year-old and she was like... She kind of went, oh, bums. <laughs> like, 
you think, oh, well, if she, she's not, because she hasn't noticed any of the other stuff, obviously. Yeah. I suppose it's, it's taking a leaf out of the Busby Berkeley playbook, isn't it? Of having ranks of female bodies all lined up and kind of foregrounding particular parts of, of their anatomy. <laughs> Somewhat, sometimes in quite sort of ludicrously over-the-top ways. And, you know, it's interesting that it's a film that's got an American choreographer, so I wonder if some of that kind of Broadway practices and Hollywood practices, are, and also the idea that we want to make something that will appeal to international audiences. You've got to speak the same visual language. Jesse's or Harriet's, well, Harriet Greenmark Wands understudy is Maud played by Betty Balfour. So Betty Balfour was the biggest star of 1920s British films. Jessie has then come along as the biggest star of 1930s British film. This That seems a bit pointed to me. Do you think that's a kind of conscious bit of casting? Yeah. To the two it's, decades it's, together. It's Betty Balfour's kind of comeback. So, I mean, not that she'd been away that long, but usually she'd played this particular character, Squibs, who was kind of like a good-hearted Cockney. Uh, Flower seller was she or something? Yeah, something I think like, so. Yeah. And she and as Squibs, Betty Balfour is in a series of really you know, top box office hits in, in Britain in the 20s. And then she comes back to appear in this kind of ancillary role, really, in this particular drama. She's become the friend. She's moved from being the star of the show to the friend but but she does it she does it very well um i yeah you can't help thinking there's something quite pointed and deliberate about having these two big female stars in brit past of recent past and present day in there especially because the film is so much about the past the present the return of someone making a comeback and that's exactly what balfour's doing although she's you know not passing off her daughter as her own unchanged self she has her own bit of pretense because she she's not from the from the gutter but she's she's like a working class chorus girl and she becomes all gets all a bit lardy dar and um yeah when she but becomes that, a lady that did happen a lot didn't it with the sort yeah. of stage door johnnies at the gaiety theater and you know all of them becoming like lady this and marchioness that it Those was mustache twiddling fellows who uh <laughs> yeah there is quite a path to social mobility that idea that it's a, a way of reaching the eyes and the attention of the aristocracy. And, you know, and there's a little bit of that in Jesse Matthews' own first marriage, although it's not someone in the audience, it's someone who's on stage with her. But he's, you know, distinctly posher than she is. And she, you know, does talk about it a bit in terms of a way into this whole other way of life, this higher class, you know, life of comfort and ease and, all the things that her own upbringing didn't have at all. After this period, after this run of five Victor Saville films, then she starts to work with other directors, notably Sonny, her husband. And it, it seems to be the received wisdom that her film career starts to deteriorate slightly at this point. Is this period of five films of Victor Saville and Evergreen in particular, is it, is it the peak of her film career? It seems quite early in her film career to be the peak. I think so, but then she's such a kind of pre prodigious talent. You know, she's she's a kind of very bright flame that burns very brightly very early. And you do wonder how 
sustainable that level of successes and, and certainly it seems to have created an enormous mental strain upon her as well as physical exhaustion. Thank you to Dr Melanie Williams of the University of East Anglia for coming on the show to talk about Evergreen. Melanie has written lots of interesting stuff about film, including books about David Lean and The Taste of Honey, both of which I love. And thanks also to Rob Baker, Lauren Snapper and Jade Evans for their excellent contributions and to Jane Slavin for reading the passages from Jesse's autobiography, Despite Drowning in Snot. You'll find links to information about all of my guests and their splendid work in the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.com. In the next episode, the last instalment of this three-part Jesse Matthews special, Jesse's career falters, as does her marriage to Sonny, but she has one last magnificent hurrah, and of course, we'll be talking to another special guest about another Jesse Matthews film. Will it be first to go? Will it be Friday the 13th? Only time will tell. Please consider subscribing to the show if you haven't done so already. You can do that through one of the many podcast apps listed at SohoBytesPodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can tweet or X us. The handle is at BiteSoho. And our email address is SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. And remember, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that in the form of a kind review at SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash review or by contributing a drop of your hard-earned moolah to help cover our costs at SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. I'll see you in a few weeks, and bye for now. Bye.